Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is a frequent guest that we have on our program, and that's John Hood. John is the president of the John William Pope Foundation and uh, has been a guest on our program for a number of years. Uh, almost, uh, I don't know, four or five times a year, maybe maybe six times a year. We always depend on John to sort of give us an overview of what's happening on not only the national level, but also the state level and also in politics, and we value his opinion. John, of course, is comes at things from the uh, uh, conservative point of view, and we point that out simply because uh, we want you to know where he's coming from in that. Well, John, interesting things going on. Uh, let's, let's sort of start with, uh, I know, by the way, I know you're publishing a new book, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. But uh, on the national level, uh, we've now had a, a good spell of uh, action under the new president, the new administration. So what kind of marks would you give the president and what kind of marks would you give Congress at this point in view, at this point in time? Um, president Biden, I think started out, he's not going to ever be my cup of tea. Admittedly, you said that at the start and that's, that's a good thing for people to know that they would have figured it out anyway, if, if you hadn't mentioned it. Uh, but I think he started out with a lot of pluses, a lot of advantages. He started out with a fairly uh, high level of public support or at least respect, and he has largely retained that. The events of January 6th and subsequent days uh, created, I think, a little bit more, uh, I wouldn't call it sympathy, but certainly an openness for President Biden to begin, begin his administration, not just with the left of the American electorate, but a good chunk of the center. That has deteriorated, I think, particularly in the last three months or so, because we got past the initial wave, we got past the initial transition of power, we got past some of the COVID-related, truly COVID-related responses that had a lot of support. And now we're into the sort of the thick of the new, new deal. Whenever there's a Democratic president, this happened with Bill Clinton, sort of happened with Jimmy Carter, but not didn't really take off. But with Bill Clinton and certainly with Barack Obama, <clears throat> the suggestion was, now the Democrats are finally in a position where they can launch a new New Deal, like Roosevelt, the saint of the party. And Biden, I think, drew heavily from that, probably more than Barack Obama did. And so he has in mind a fairly expansive set of programs across the board that will cost trillions of dollars, expected the uh, sort of public sigh of relief after the Trump years to result in support for his program. And I think it's genuinely, genuinely surprised that he doesn't have it. He knew he wasn't going to get a lot of Republican support in Congress, but he figured that he might be able to either get Democratic senators like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema to break the filibuster or to somehow uh, knuckle under lots of pressure from the left-wing base of the party maybe bring a few Republican senators over. I mean, I think he, since he was a creature of the Senate himself for decades and knows a lot of senators very well, I think Joe Biden believed that he was going to have more support and more progress in some of his large scale activity than he's actually gotten. 
I don't think that was a reasonable expectation, but that was the expectation that he had. And also, I think, was urged on to believe that by not just sort of obvious suspects within the Democratic Party, but media figures, um, left-wing historians who were sort of telling him he could be the the next uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And I think like lots of presidents, he had some initial success, but he reached a lot more than he could really grasp. And now he's faced with, Biden, I mean, faced with maybe making a deal with Republicans to do a little bit of what he wanted to do on infrastructure, but otherwise be stymied by not just the process, not just the filibuster, but by public reaction. Uh, The public is simply not on board to going even more trillions of dollars into debt. Well, it, uh, you know, I think that's uh, a very accurate assessment of the situation. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing that uh, I, I felt all along was, you know, when you said you got control of the Senate and that relies on the, the, uh, the vote of the vice president, you really only have to have one person to switch. And on a lot of these issues, uh, things like estate taxes and things like that, there's at least one or two Democrats almost on almost every issue that's going to find difficulty in voting for that. This is also the kind of thing that people say, and I know this because I, I, I can imagine someone listening, thinking, oh, he's just saying that because he doesn't like what Biden wants to do. But this is a classic case of overreading your mandate. Uh, I don't mean so much President Biden's personal mandate. He won. Uh, He could have lost the election if a few results had gone differently in a few states, but he certainly won a a comfortable margin in the popular vote. Starts out with a fair amount of public support, not just for the Democratic base. But the Senate majority, as you point out, Don, isn't a majority at all. It's a 50-50 Senate with a vice president settling the tie. And furthermore, the Democrats won two Senate seats in Georgia in, in in a rather odd circumstance in a circumstance in which the president at that time, Trump, the Republican leader, was calling into question whether votes in Georgia will really be counted uh, legally and correctly. So basically, he was depressing his own party's turnout, and that helped to elect two Democratic senators. Now, you know, an election's an election. They won fair and square. But what I'm getting at is that they were overreading the results that took that Democratic number up to 50 senators. They should have recognized that it was not Georgia voters endorsing uh, defund the police or vast increases in federal power and vast increases in federal spending. That just didn't happen in Georgia. Uh, and it didn't happen in some other places like a West Virginia or in Arizona where Democrats have been elected. Uh, by electorates that are otherwise not particularly left-leaning. And so I just think they they misread the the moment. They assumed that they would get and continue to get all this positive press, which they largely have, but that's not enough. Lots of people don't take their cues from what's in the mainstream media anymore. They get their information differently. Could be concerned about the quality of that information if you want to. It doesn't matter. That's how they get their information. I just think that the Biden administration miscalculated and could have had more legislative success if they if they'd started out with more sensible goals. So over the next uh, three months, what kind of legislation do you think we will have and what will pass? 
the most likely major piece of legislation is potentially an infrastructure bill. There has been some negotiations among Democratic and Republican senators. They came up with a bill or a proposal, I guess it's not a bill yet, but a proposal that would spend really over the next several years a little over half a trillion dollars more than the baseline. That's a lot of money, but it's nothing like what Biden was originally pitching. And this would be for real infrastructure. That, was that came from a bipartisan group, right? Yes, it did. And, and Biden has yeah. not necessarily signed off on it, but I think it's the only kind of infrastructure deal that he can get. And it is a real infrastructure deal. Uh, I, I don't much like federal spending on most infrastructure. I'd rather it be done at the state and local level. But if you're going to do it, uh, you build roads, you build bridges, pipelines, maybe broadband, you know, actual infrastructure common carriers of one kind or the other. Biden, as you know, wanted to elide the distinction between infrastructure and other kinds of spending and say childcare subsidies were infrastructure and education was infrastructure. At some point, if you call everything infrastructure, nothing is infrastructure. <laughs> and so I think that was, again, actually injurious to his ability to pass a bill. And now that the senators, the, the bipartisan group have stepped forward and made their own arrangements that really are about infrastructure, I think that actually becomes more likely to pass, though certainly not guaranteed to pass. Where do we stand on COVID-19 now? Because we appear to be sort of at a point where we are not making as much progress. We had a tremendous amount of folks who took the vaccine just almost automatically right off the bat, but it slowed down. Uh, and uh, not only do we have a number of people in the United States not vaccinated, but the, the worldwide situation of COVID-19 hasn't changed a great deal. Well, I, I would describe those facts more positively than, than you did. Uh, it is true that fewer than half of our population has been fully inoculated, fully, fully vaccinated, I should say, against COVID-19. But a larger percentage have got at least one shot, which has protective benefits. Uh, a lar another chunk of, of Americans and North Carolinians have already had COVID-19. They have natural immunity built up. Maybe that won't last for five years or something, but it still matters right now. It, it's part of crushing the virus's trajectory. Um, and furthermore, the COVID-19 mortality rates, as we know, we knew that a year ago, were so heavily skewed towards people who are over 50, in fact, people who are over 65, and that share of the population is overwhelmingly vaccinated or has already had it. Now, I'm not saying there aren't deaths still occurring every day, there are, but uh, I would describe the COVID-19 pandemic as receding. I think it is reasonable to start sending some of these vaccines to other countries where the vaccination rates are so much lower and the death rates are higher, the survivability of COVID is worse. I do think more and more Americans, including people who are currently vaccine skeptical, will end up taking the vaccine for various reasons. Their skepticism will wane. They will, they will sort of see all their friends doing it. Uh, there will be opportunities that are presented to them that aren't going to be as pleasant if they don't have vaccination. So I think vaccination will still take hold at a greater level than it is right now. But it is important not to just look at the share of people who've been fully vaccinated. That's less than half at the, the time we're speaking, but w way over half, you know, a majority of Americans uh, are immune. And the vast majority of people who are likely to die from COVID are already immune in one fashion or the other. So you have a more positive view, especially in the United States, 
Are you a little bit worried about the uh, progress, in, especially in the, the undeveloped countries? Absolutely. That's why I think it's entirely appropriate for the vaccine supply to be heading in those directions. Not only is the vaccination rate so much lower, but as I said earlier, there's survivability. So you get COVID and you're vulnerable. You're elderly. You've got a pre-existing condition. Uh, you've got a, some chance of surviving in America. You have very little chance of surviving in, in other countries, in India and places in Africa and South America. And so we, we need to ramp up vaccination there, I think, quickly. And we, and we as Americans need to help with that, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it is in our interest to suppress COVID-19 around the world. Very quickly, uh, any hope any uh, on the national level for any uh, election law reform that uh, will meaningfully change anything that we've been doing? Um, I don't think a national bill, big sweeping national bill will pass, and I don't think it should pass because I just don't think much of what they want to do in Congress is worth doing at the national level or even constitutional. I think a number of states have enacted voting laws. I think both sides have exaggerated their significance. Uh, I think that states will continue to pass laws that do make people feel more confident about the election process, but don't really affect voting rights very much. Voter ID being a classic example, most people like it. Most people think it'd be good. It doesn't really matter very much in terms of uh, turnout either way. Don Hood is our guest, and we'll be back with more here on Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT G-O-A-T Acronym stands for greatest of all time, as in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner. They're my fave. Dad, you're the goat. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with our guest, John Hood, who has recently written a new book uh, called, uh, what, what is the name of it? Is it Mountain Folk? Mountain Folk. What's the name of the book? That's right. Mountain Folk. Tell me about the book. Well, Mountain Folk is a novel. So I've written a number of other books, uh, but this is my first fiction book. Actually, that that's my claim, though some of my critics would say my previous nonfiction books were really full of fiction. Okay. But I the, was going, you stole, you jumped on that before I had the chance to knock <laughs> you on that one. Okay. No, I, don't, so, I, did, I, did, I did not necessarily assume you were one of my critics, Don. I, that, that, well, I'm not one of your critics, but it was just, it was just a wonderful line to have the opportunity. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, I, I do a little bit of painting and people ask me, do I paint in the abstract? And I said, yes, but they don't start off that way. 
And uh, I think think in a number of cases, a lot of your books start off nonfiction, but some of them may end up a little bit. Well, I'm just okay. Well, yeah, you've been talking. You've been talking about critics. That's okay. It's okay to have critics. It's better to have critics than have no readers at all. That's the way I think about it. So Mountain Folk is a historical fantasy novel. That means actually I did a lot of research. uh, And there's a lot of this book that is based on source documents and and historical accounts. And even me, I even went to some of the locations uh, where Mountain Folk occurs and walked down the trail and walked up the mountain to see if the, the scene that I'm describing could actually happen. There was, there's a pivotal scene, and I'll tell you a little bit more about the plot of the book in a second, but there's a pivotal scene where there's a battle uh, that happens actually at Hanging Rock State Park in North Carolina uh, next to a, a little cave, and I had described the events in the, in the first draft, and then I went and walked around, and I realized, they can't do that. This, this hill is too steep. You can't do that. So I had to change the, the account of the battle to, to, account, to accommodate reality, which... I guess you have to do even in a fantasy novel if you if you set it in real life. So Mountain Folk actually is set in the Revolutionary War period. So most of the action occurs from 1750s through the 1780s. Uh, not all, but a lot of the action occurs in North Carolina, particularly in the area I mentioned earlier, the Stokes County area where Hanging Rock State Park is north of Winston-Salem. And also... Uh, just west of that, Pilot Mountain. In fact, Pilot Mountain is pictured on the cover of the book uh, and is a major setting of of mountain folk. It's where one of my non-human nations live. They live on top of Pilot Mountain, on on top of the knob there. Uh, So this is a a novel that has George Washington commanding troops at Yorktown. It has rescues and thrilling escapes and that sort of thing. It also has Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson arguing about uh, whether the federal government should regulate banks, a truly scintillating and and jaw-dropping scene. And it has Daniel Boone fighting a giant fire-spitting salamander. So that's the scope of the book. It's the kind of book I know you've seen before. And you can and you can buy it at Amazon and Barnes and Noble, right? That's correct. And and anywhere where good books are sold, Mountain Folk is sold, but does not necessarily mean it's a good book. You'll you'll just have to draw that conclusion for yourself. Well, as you know, I'm from Bessemer City, which is located only five miles from Kings Mountain. One of the great battles in the civil in the Revolutionary War was fought at Kings Mountain. As a matter of fact, Kings Mountain claims that that was the turning point of the revolution. But uh, and the Battle of Kings Cornwall. Mountain is is the one of the the last and major parts of my book. It's, it takes up a whole chapter. The setup to Kings Mountain is is explained in some detail, and one of the main characters of Mountain Folk is Old Kings Mountain himself, Isaac Shelby, who was one of the commanders at Kings yeah. Mountain. Um, he is one of the key characters of the book. You you first meet him as a teenager and you experience some of what his life was like over the ensuing decades. He was eventually, Isaac Shelby eventually became the first governor of the state of Kentucky, uh, even fought in the War of 1812 briefly uh, as an older gentleman, still the the governor of that state. Uh, And Isaac Shelby is my first cousin, uh, six generations removed. So I I enjoyed including uh, family, 
relatives of mine in Mountain Folk uh, to give oh, them a little bit more, uh, what they call verisimilitude, which basically means truthiness. Well, one of the well-done uh, parks and in, in, uh, uh, site that a lot of folks ought to go to because it's well done is the Kings Mountain Military Park. It's a national military park, not a national park, a national military park. And they have a, a great uh, museum there. But also uh, Cornwallis, who, as you probably know from your research, the uh, British commander said, I am on top of Kings Mountain at my command. And in fact, the Battle of Kings Mountain was fought on a hill a long way away from Kings Mountain, five or six miles away from the mountain. Well, it's a, it, the, the, the actual plateau where the battle occurs. I mean, it was fairly steep, and I do just, I actually have in the book yeah. the, 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 the yeah. Patriots charging up the hill and the Tories yeah. fighting and all that. It's important for listeners to know that, Mount, that Kings Mountain is, was one of the turning points in the Southern Theater of the Revolutionary War, but there was only one British regular present at the battle, the commander, Patrick Ferguson, Major Ferguson. He was the yeah. only British that this was entirely on the Patriot side, militiamen. And on the uh, Tory side, it was a combination of militia and troops that had been American troops that had volunteered to fight for the British and been trained as, as Tory regulars. And so this was a, this was a civil war. This was a battle among Americans. Well, if you're ever up near Kings Mountain, listeners, if you're ever up that way, it's, it's well worth a, a five or six hour visit to the Kings Mountain Military Park. Well, Let's get back to uh, uh, other issues. Uh, President Trump, of course, made one of his first uh, political visits here in North Carolina. What, uh, what do you think happened as a result of that? And does that change Trump's influence in the state of North Carolina? Well, it puts President, former President Trump's influence to the test because what he did in part, he, he drew a crowd. It was the state Republican convention. I'm sure it had a lot more attendance because the former president was attending than it would have otherwise had. But that wasn't the real political significance of the event. It was President Trump's decision at this convention to endorse Ted Budd in the U.S. Senate race in North Carolina. Budd is a congressman, two-term congressman from the triad area. And uh, he was one of three major characters in this, in this race. Pat McCrory, the former governor and former mayor of Charlotte, has announced as has Mark Walker, another former congressman from the triad area. Ted Budd was polling in third place uh, going into the Republican convention. When the former president endorsed Budd, that almost certainly catapulted him into contention for the U.S. Senate race. It doesn't guarantee that he'll win, though. And uh, remember that in North Carolina now, you only have to get over 30% of the vote to avoid a runoff. It used to be 40%. You know, decades ago, it used to be you had to get a majority of the vote to avoid a runoff. That was done away with. That really was a racist, uh, inst racially instituted policy to keep black Democrats from winning their party's primary. So they got rid of that. They changed it to 40 percent. Now it's only 30 percent. That means that whether it's Bud or Walker or McCrory, uh, there'll, there'll be no runoff if they get over 30 percent. And it's possible that one will do so right off the bat. But it's not guaranteed that that'll be Ted Budd. People assume that Donald Trump's endorsement will make the difference. It might, but he's endorsed in other races in the past, and it didn't turn out to determine the outcome. So it's possible in this case with McCrory, who's the best known candidate, probably would be well-financed candidate. McCrory could certainly win 
even though Bud got Trump's endorsement. I don't think Mark Walker has as strong a shot, uh, though he did actually win the straw poll at the Republican convention in Greenville. Uh, so it's interesting. All three had some pluses. McCrory still polling the highest, Ted Budd getting Trump's endorsement, and Mark Walker being essentially endorsed by most of the people or a plurality of the people who attended the convention. So where does uh, where do you think Trump is leading himself toward establishing a possible run for re-election or his political future? Where, where do you see him going from this point on? He is certainly talking as if he expects to be the Republican nominee in uh, 2024. Of course, he often says that he'll be president even before then because he'll be, he, he speculates at least to friends and sometimes you can read it in his public comments that he seems to think he's going to be reinstated at some point by the Supreme Court or a lawsuit or something, which is of course poppycock. But it, it certainly right now, it does sound as if he's planning to run in 2024 and expects to be the nominee. He's doing some of the things you would need to do in order to accomplish that task. He is staying politically active. He intervened in the U.S. Senate race in North Carolina. I'm sure he will do fundraisers and maybe intervene. I know he's intervening in some House races around the country, U.S. House races. He may intervene in some other Senate races. Uh, the plus side of that is that it, it reinforces the sense that he is still the leader of the Republican Party which is an important way to get the nomination again in 2024. The danger, of course, is that he may go out there and, not, and, and endorse a number of folks and they might not win. They either may not win the primary or if, win, if winning the primary, they may fall short in the general election, something that Trump might be blamed for. So imagine a scenario where a candidate is endorsed by Trump and wins. There's a reasonable argument that a different Republican would have run better in the general election, but the Trump-endorsed candidate is, is on the ballot and, and that candidate loses. Well, then that might actually put at risk some of people's confidence in Trump as a political leader. So there's some risk associated with Trump's strategy. I still think, and as no fan of, of Trump, still think it's probably his best strategy. You gotta remain politically relevant. Uh, and that doesn't mean an occasional blog post or something. It has to be something more active. And that is apparently what Trump and his team have decided to do. It's interesting, and, and of course, the, the uh, his daughter-in-law's decision not to run, that wasn't really a major surprise, I don't believe. Do you? No, that had been telegraphed months earlier. It was unlikely. She has young children. We're talking about Laura Trump, who does have North Carolina ties, went to the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. She um, would be a first-time candidate. She would simply be running because her last name is Trump. That would be challenging in my view anyway, but particularly if you have young children and a lot of other responsibilities, I think it was her best decision. I think that was the right thing for her to do, not to run. But that doesn't mean other so, Trumps won't run and in other situations, and perhaps she'll be a candidate in the future sometime. So when do you think Trump will actually make a final decision as to whether he is gonna seek another term? I mean, it's, it's three and a half years away right now. Well, let's look at the 2022 cycle. If if the Republicans have a great cycle, this is possible. It's fairly common for a midterm election to go against the president's party. It's happened to most presidents in our lifetimes and before that. So it's possible Republicans have a great 2022 cycle. They reclaim the U.S. House, perhaps the U.S. Senate and House. 
Maybe they make gains in governorships and legislatures. And Trump credibly argues that he was part of that victory. Uh, then I think he'll probably fairly quickly after uh, election day in 2022, like in, in the early part of the following year, he'll be more obviously setting up a campaign. That assumes he wants to run again, which right now I got to assume that that's the case. On the other hand, if 2022 is disappointing for some reason and Trump takes some of the blame, at least tacitly, for disappointing results, maybe that would dissuade him that maybe what he wouldn't ever want to do is run for the presidency and lose again. I don't think he wants to do that again. Our guest is John Hood, who's the president of the John William Pope Foundation, frequent guest on our program, and the author of a new book, which we talked about earlier, which you can buy at uh, Amazon or, or from Amazon or at Barnes & Noble or other quality bookstores. We'll be back with uh, another session with John right after these messages. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Play in puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say, he's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me, but I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org caregiving for care guides and community. Support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest. John, let's let's turn to one of the uh, assignments that this General Assembly will have, and that is the uh, addition uh, or the changing of the uh, congressional map uh, because of the fact that we have now qualified for an additional congressional seat in North Carolina and how that's uh, probably going to, in your opinion, turn out. And who's going to come out the winner, the Democrats or the Republicans? Um, not having any inside knowledge of this, my, my reading of the situation is as follows. Of course, North Carolina will get a new U.S. House seat that will likely go somewhere in the Piedmont. The growth of North Carolina has not been limited to the Charlotte area and the Triangle area. Okay, there's been lots of growth in, in some other counties, too, here, here and there. But disproportionately, the growth really is in that I-85 corridor that stretches from, from Charlotte north and east through the triad region, broadly defined, and then over to the Triangle. And I think that the new seat will go somewhere in there. Uh, of course, if you stick a new seat in, you're going to have to change all the other lines. One way to think about this is uh, the populated 
areas of the state, in those places, the congressional districts will shrink. They'll get smaller because there'll be more people in, in the location. So you could get to the same uh, average number of, of people represented with a smaller footprint. So those districts will get smaller. And whereas the big, big sprawling districts in the western part of the state or in the northeast quadrant of the state, the southeast quadrant of the state, they will get a little bit larger in order to encompass more territory so they'll have enough people in them to meet the population standard. So fitting a new district into the somewhere between Charlotte, the triad, maybe over a little bit east of that, will not be a, a challenging thing as far as drawing the map. How squiggly the lines will be and how much they will be rigged to favor either the Republicans in general or particular candidates, we'll just have to see. But the, the redistricting process has now been uh, quasi-reformed several times by litigation. This happened two decades ago in some litigation that strengthened the county line rule that applies to, to legislative uh, districts and congressional maps. That more recently, Democrats sued uh, the Republican legislature a couple of different ways on redistricting. And one of the outcomes of that was for the 2020 cycle that we just went through last year, the maps were redrawn under a process that forbade lawmakers from using some of the data they may have used in the past. They had to do a lot of the work in public as people were watching. There were some other rules having to do with uh, not excessively uh, favoring one faction or the other. And although they are not currently under a court order to do so, the legislative leaders have said they're going to follow that same process and they get the census data from the federal government and begin to draw maps, which presumably will be this fall. And so I think that while I personally would have liked to have more uh, specific criteria instituted in the state constitution as a constitutional amendment or in some kind of statutory reform of redistricting, that's not what happened. We didn't get that. But we still do have some improvements to the redistricting process out of litigation that I think will limit, though not eliminate, of course, the effects of gerrymandering. There are those who say that uh, legitimately uh, and using the criteria that they've used before that the Republicans will actually gain two seats out of this. Do you see that happening? Um, maybe. If, if, the, if the Republicans draw maps that are expected to or actually produce a net gain of two seats, uh, that kind of map, not, not necessarily because of the net gain, but that map will certainly be litigated. And given recent history, uh, I would be very careful if I was Republicans not to get so into uh, political gain that you end up having your map thrown out. So, so yes, of course, theoretically, you could do that. I'm not sure that will be the outcome in practice. Now, the average is about 800,000 people will be in each congressional district, somewhere around that number. Uh, so metropolitan areas like Raleigh and Charlotte, the Triangle and Charlotte, of course, both of them have uh, considerably more people than that. So the influence of the larger cities uh, like Charlotte and, and the Raleigh-Durham area uh, uh, is going to increase. And of course, that will carry over also into the House and the Senate. Um, that's just a fact. And do you think that will major uh, change anything um, in a major way as far as the outcome of legislation that comes out? 
Well, there will certainly be, if you look at the legislature in particular, uh, where it probably matters more than the congressional map, there will be an increased uh, strength by urban and suburban areas at the expense of rural areas. This has been going on for decades. It will continue. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that urban and suburban areas that are fast growing see eye to eye and they have some inherent tension with rural interests. Actually, sometimes the rural and suburban feel like they have more in common than suburban and urban. Do. And for a lot of times, whether it's redistricting political power or economics or all sorts of other things, we get carried away with this dichotomy between urban and rural city and country. Uh, the truth is that depending on how you define it, but I think the best definitions would suggest the largest group, the largest slice of North Carolina is suburban. It is not a big city, or at least not the urban core of a big city, and it is not a rural area. It's in between. And a lot of our fast-growing counties, places like Cabarrus and Union uh, in the Charlotte area, or the Johnston County area, Johnston County next to the Raleigh area. Uh, there's some counties in the triad that are growing rapidly that are next to Guilford and uh, Forsyth and, and very rapidly grown counties next to Wilmington, Pender and Brunswick counties. These are all places that are not urban. They're not, but they have lots of population growth. I think the fairest way to describe them would be suburban and the suburban lawmaker, if someone represents suburban interests, it's already a significant part of the General Assembly, and that will grow, too. One of the hottest and most watched races in the 2022 election cycle will be the, uh, the current Richard Burr seat. Uh, how about handicapping that for us right now? You've already mentioned a little bit about the three major Republican candidates. Uh, let's talk about that, not only that, but also the Democratic candidates that have surfaced so far, and then uh, forecast who you think might run against each other and how that will come out. Well, it's a tall order, but um, no one has ever called me pusillanimous when it comes to going out and making a political. Oh, your day. word of the day. What was that again? Well, I, I already used the word verisimilitude. I figured that was my word of the day, but uh, I'll take oh, pusillanimous. No. Pusillanimous just means sort of uh, cowardly, timid. Uh, I don't usually do that when it comes to political stuff. So I, I, here's what I think. First of all, there are three Democratic names to think about. Sherry Beasley, the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who's clearly running for Senate. Jeff Jackson, State Senator from Mecklenburg County, clearly running for Senate. And Erica Smith, former State Senator from the, the northeastern part of the state, who had run... Uh, in 2020, but didn't get the nomination. Cal Cunningham got the nomination. She has said she's running for the Senate, probably intended to, but I'm wondering now, there's some talk that perhaps G.K. Butterfield, one of the Democratic members of the House delegation from North Carolina, may, be, uh, may, may get a different job in the Biden administration in one fashion or the other. And that would open up a seat that is Democratic leaning where Erica Smith lives. And so if she ran for Congress in 2022, because that seat was open, that would not at all shock me or maybe even she runs in a special election before we get to 2022. Um, between Jackson and Sherry Beasley, I think Beasley has a clear advantage. I would expect her to be the Democratic nominee unless something really strange happens. On the Republican side, we've already mentioned Ted Budd, Mark Walker, Pat McCrory. Uh, 
I would still right now think the edge, at least modestly, goes to Pat McCrory, the former governor who's already known statewide and actually pretty well liked across the part the, the Republican electorate in North Carolina. But it's also possible Ted Budd could get the nomination because of Trump's support. Either of those facing Sherry Beasley will be one of the most competitive races in, in the United States. We usually have competitive Senate races. We'll certainly have one in 2022. I would tend to give the Republican nominee a slight edge in the general election for some historical reasons. Again, the voters tend to want to balance things out. So right now we have a fully Democratic Washington, Democrat president, Democratic majorities in Congress, or at least sort of a majority in the Senate. I think the, Repub I think the swing voter will lean Republican in 2022. That would help whoever the Republican nominee, whether it's Pat McCrory or, or Ted Budd, against Beasley, but anything is possible there. And we, we just don't have shoe-in Senate races in, in North Carolina. We just don't have them. We haven't had them in a long time. Well, of course, as uh, we've talked about numerous times, the number of people who are registered unaffiliated in North Carolina continues to rise. Uh, as both some of my friends in both parties say, well, they're obviously leaning Democrat or Republican at all, at, at all times. But the fact that they register affiliated means that they're up for grabs. So uh, do you see this trend continuing a good bit that uh, we will continue to see more and more people register unaffiliated? This oh, is yes. going to complicate yes. the primary process. Yes, the unaffiliated registration is going to continue to grow. It's going to be the it's going to be the, the predominant registration in North Carolina pretty soon, I think. Um, I think you're well, right. That, and I have said this in the past. And I still would say that most unaffiliated voters are actually partisan voters. They vote pretty reliably Democratic or Republican. They just don't want to belong to the party. And I still believe that. But it's important not to oversell that point. There are still swing voters. And in a place like Alabama, they don't matter. In a place like uh, Massachusetts, they don't matter very much. California, they don't matter. And the reason I say that is because the, the prevailing party in those places, the Republicans in Alabama, the Democrats in California, they're going to win pretty much all the statewide races with a very few. You have to have a sort of a strange situation like we saw with Doug Jones in Alabama. Uh, so you've got a few percentage of swing vote. And even if they swing against the majority party, it's not enough to matter. That is not true in North Carolina, where the two parties have fairly similar bases. If you take their registra the registered D's and R's and you add the unaffiliated who lean that way, they start out with a comparable base. And that means that, yes, you got to turn your base out and that matters, but swing voters can still tip the outcome. I think that's what happened in 2020. Swing voters tip the outcome. Uh, they went Democrat for some races like governor. They voted for Roy Cooper and they voted for Tom Tillis for Senate. Uh, that kind of phenomenon will exist in 2022. And so I think those, let's say it's Pat McCrory versus Sherry Beasley. This will not just be a question of turning out your base. It will also be a question of who is considered the most sensible candidate to check and balance power in Washington. Well, we haven't even talked about the uh, gubernatorial race and other up and rising uh, political candidates for both parties. We might do that in the next segment. Uh, as a matter of fact, we will do that in the next segment. Uh, any other observations basically on this uh, 2022 election in North Carolina as far as the congressional incumbents? 
Um, I don't think there will be a whole lot of that. There may be a competitive seat come out of the redistricting process. We'll have to see. But I think right now, most of the seats will probably remain uh, lean R and lean D or solid R, solid D. And that is not simply a gerrymandering construct. That's because different parts of the state have pretty strong partisan leanings right now. You'd have to draw lots of squiggly lines, actually, meandering all over the place to create well, you know, five or six competitive seats. And I don't think that's really what North Carolinians want. They don't want districts that, that snake all across the state to try to make some sort of fake constituency put, put together. So, so anyway, I, that's where I think we are on that. I think the legislative races will be competitive, but Republicans will be favored to hold their majorities and maybe even get to super majorities again in at least one of chambers. Our guest is John Hood, a frequent guest on our program. We have one final segment, and in that segment, we're going to be talking about current legislation uh, at the state level, amongst other things. And we will look forward to doing that when we return, right after these messages. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team, but I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. <sighs> we want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Watch out! The galaxy is safe once again. In the pretend universe, kids play with pretend guns. In the real world, it's up to us to make sure they don't get their hands on a real gun. If you have a gun in the house, keep it locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back with John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation, is our guest on Carolina Newsmakers this week. A reminder, this program comes in two different versions, a full hour version in, in a number of our markets. And then uh, two of the segments are produced in a half hour version that a number of the affiliates here. And those affiliates, uh, if you're listening to those and like to hear the two segments that you miss, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear those segments or if you'd like to repeat the entire broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do that as well. As I said, John Hood is our guest. And John, uh, two things we want to talk about in this session. Uh, one is up and coming political newcomers to the scene of both Republicans and Democrats, people we should keep our eyes on. And the second thing is the uh, current situation with regard to legislation and the state budget. So let's start with that one. Uh, all of a sudden, North Carolina finds themselves with uh, far more funds on hand than we thought, plus the fact we've got a lot of federal money coming in. Um, it's uh, it's sort of a, uh, a very interesting situation where we uh, find ourselves with lots of money and lots of choices. So what do you think is going to come out of all this? 
we do have lots of revenue North Carolina has collected well over $6 billion uh, more in revenue than was originally forecast for this fiscal year. That's a tremendous amount of revenue. You also have several billions of dollars of federal funds, some of which encumbered, some of which really haven't been encumbered yet. So there's a lot of money out there. I think the General Assembly wants to have still a sort of sustainable rate of annual spending growth in the three and a half percent range or so. I don't remember the exact number, but that's roughly what they want to want to do because they still know that some of this money is one-time money or, or can't be counted on three or four years from now. They don't want to create an unsustainable rate of increase that ends up causing problems later. But that doesn't mean they're going to spend a lot of this other money in other ways. They're going to put some of the money into savings, which I think is entirely reasonable. They're going to put some of the money specifically into savings uh, to try to cover some of the unfunded liabilities we have for our state employees. Our pension fund is reasonably well-funded. But we've also made promises to public employees in North Carolina to provide supplemental retiree health benefits, supplemental to Medicare. And we don't have any real money, not very much money set aside for that. So that's something we need to be over the next number of years, really putting away billions of dollars in savings so we can accommodate those retiree health needs as our public employees retire. There's also a lot of interest in infrastructure spending. The governor, Governor Cooper, had proposed a bond package, bond issue, arguing that interest rates are very low. Why not take out lots of debt and do infrastructure projects because the, the, the debt payments would be so low? Well, that's not an unreasonable argument, except we already had billions of dollars in surplus that could be used to, as cash to pay for infrastructure. It's, it's great to pay low interest rates. It's even better to pay no interest rates. So I think that that's the outlines of a deal, there will be some infrastructure spending, there'll be some savings, there'll be healthy increases in, in just general state spending for public employees and teachers, raises and some other needs of the state. And then you will also have tax reduction. The Senate has proposed and, and enacted or, or passed a version of tax relief that would include phasing out the corporate income tax over several years, reducing the personal income tax rate a little bit more, increasing the deduction, standard deduction and child allowances for families filing state income tax, changing the franchise tax on, on business and some other things. It's a big tax package, but I think affordable. And will, some version of that will be in the final budget that goes to Governor Cooper. Now, Governor Cooper's not going to get Medicaid expansion, but he knows that. He's not really been this year insisting on that. He would like to do even larger amounts of state spending growth than the legislature will do. That's where the impasse will be. The governor has already said, look, I don't really like your tax package. He's talking to the Republicans. I don't really like your tax package, but we could afford to do it and all the spending I want to do and still have the money left over. And mathematically, he's right. So I think he may dig at his heels a bit. I think the Republicans will argue that we don't want to obligate the state too much towards annual spending increases off into the future when we don't necessarily have revenue coming in like gangbusters three or four years from now. So I think they've got an argument. The governor has an argument that suggests that we may have an impasse that lasts uh, through the summer. The rainy day fund, of course, looks like it's going to be the beneficiary of some of this. And that's good because uh, times may not always be this good. That's right. And we also sometimes have literal rainy days. We have hurricanes and other events that we need to be able to fund out of savings. So we had a reasonable savings account. It had been, we dipped into it a little bit, 
Now we're able to replenish it and add some more to it. And like I said, I'm even more interested right now and let's have some dedicated reserves so that these retiree health benefits, which are tens of billions of dollars of promised benefits to public employees, I want to make sure five or 10 years from now that we're paying those benefits uh, somewhat out of savings so we're not eating into the money we need to pay current employees and do current public services. And we don't have to raise taxes in, in, in five or 10 years. One of the things that seems to have uh, uh, bipartisan support is the expansion of broadband uh, to not only the undeveloped areas, but almost even the uh, metropolitan areas have areas within that doesn't have broadband. So broadband seems to be a very popular issue with both Republicans and Democrats. I think COVID-19 reinforced the significance of of broadband. In fact, it made it clear that that in a way, North Carolina abrogated its responsibility to deliver public services like public education. And the reason is there were some places, if you went all virtual, that really meant some students weren't learning anything. So I think just as a matter of ensuring that virtual education can be constitutionally supplied, I think lots of Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, progressives, they all favor doing some additional spending. The the divide on broadband used to be that Democrats, generally speaking, were in favor of allowing cities or other governments to themselves own and operate broadband entities. The Republicans were against that. There was a ban, not a ban, but essentially a bill that makes it hard for that to happen. Now, because we're not really talking about taking public money and giving it to cities to create broadband or cable systems or something. Now we're talking about a some sort of combination of grants and subsidies for private companies and private households. That is more saleable across the board. And that's what's that's what we're going to that's what we've already seen. And we're going to continue to see more of that. One of the other uh, uh, things that happened during COVID-19 was uh, the advances we made in using telemedicine. And uh, that, of course, also depends on broadband. And that also has proven to be very popular as a bipartisan issue. It's popular. And in that event, which was sort of necessitated by COVID-19, people needed uh, to get advice or get diagnoses or get prescriptions or whatever, and they couldn't go into the doctor. So it was necessitated by COVID-19, but it had the effect of breaking a a years-long logjam. There were patients who weren't comfortable doing telemedicine. There were doctors and other providers who weren't comfortable. There was a lot of concern about how you'd pay for it because the, the main payment systems, Medicare, Medicaid, private insurers, weren't really didn't have, hadn't figured out how to pay for it reasonably. I think a lot of that has now changed or is in the process of changing in the aftermath of COVID, and we will not go back. So we're going to have a significant amount of delivery of healthcare online, and I think that's pretty much a good thing. I'm glad we got there. Wish we hadn't, I wish I hadn't taken a pandemic to get us there, but that's where we are now. I think that will particularly help in rural areas where it is difficult to sustain a doctor, sometimes even a nurse practitioner in some sparsely populated places. You have to drive a really long way to get to a hospital, get to a doctor, get to a provider. And I think telemedicine will be helpful in those situations, but not just in those. John, I started the program, uh, this segment off talking about uh, the two areas that I wanted to advance. One was uh, your uh, assessment of up and coming young politicians who we might look at as future leaders of the state, both Republicans and Democrats. Who who would you name off the top of your head as the ones we ought to watch? 
Well, there are very many of them, but I would mention a couple of names. Let's start with the Democratic side. Robert Reeves is now the House Minority Leader, replacing the, the former Representative Darren Jackson. Robert Reeves is a very talented uh, leader for the Democrats. If there was ever to be a Democratic majority in the North Carolina House, he would be a very likely Speaker of the House, <clears throat> and he could be he could be running for other offices too. I'll also mention again Jeff Jackson, the state senator from Mecklenburg County. I don't think he's going to get the nomination for U.S. Senate in 2022, but I still think he's going places. On the Republican side, of course, the Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, elected last year as a political newcomer, is a rising star on the Republican party circuit. Uh, keep an eye on him. I think he is going to run for governor or some other office uh, in the near future. And also in the legislature, look at two Johns, John Bell from the Goldsboro area and John Hardister from the Greensboro area. They're both leaders right now in the, in the North Carolina House. If the current House Speaker, Tim Moore, decides to step down either from his, just from his Speaker's role or even out of the legislature altogether, uh, it's very likely that, that one of those Johns will be Speaker of the House and the other majority leader, as John Bell already is. We've got about uh, two minutes left. I want to go back now to other legislation uh, that uh, uh, the General Assembly may be looking at uh, in the rest of the session. Anything really important that we need to be concerned about and watch? There are some bills that have to do with public disclosure. Uh, and I think that lots of media folks, lots of Politicos are very interested in these bills. One of them has to do with public employees, which you've always got. You've always got groups that represent public employees, whether they're teachers or state employees, uh, very interested in bills, in this case, that would provide more public access to personnel information. Uh, not the whole person of L file, of course, but uh, there has always been some, some, dis, some concern and the police issues of the last few years have reinforced the concern that some people have that public officials public employees are not always held accountable, and that sometimes people who shouldn't be in positions of authority in, in government end up there because not enough is known about their previous track record, that sort of thing. So that's a debate where the, the media is, as usual, for more access. Republicans in general, in this case, are for more access to that information, and Democrats tend to be opposed to it. So another measure that goes in a different direction that would try to protect donor privacy, money given to 501c3 nonprofits, like a lot of the groups that I've been involved in over the years, funding or, or volunteering for. Um, that's a case where the Republicans tend to argue you shouldn't be piercing that confidentiality for donors, and Democrats tend to be more open to it. Well, that's uh, a nice assessment. Uh, you've got about. <laughs> and, and the uh, thing about that seconds. is that the transparency is usually good. Of course, there are cases when you need to be able to shield information uh, from public view if it has to do with sensitive material, you know, actual personnel decisions, elite lawsuits. But that's where there's always been a, a back and forth, and we're going to continue to see that. John, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, time is just about gone. Uh, our program has been produced by Jason Colling, and he promises me that he will have an equally fascinating guest again next week on the same group of stations. So until next week, same time, same station. But you and yours have a very good week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. 
Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.